Welcome to the Outthinkers Podcast. Plug into fascinating minds and breakthrough ideas that are transforming industries and the world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of Outthinker Networks, a global think tank comprised of corporate strategists, innovators, and entrepreneurs that are shaping the future of business. If this describes you, join us at outthinker.com. Now let's dive into this week's episode. I mean, people make it happen, and the devil is always in the details, in my experience. You know, strategies at 100,000 feet are very important, but they're executed on the ground, and they often won or lost in that execution. That's why that's so important, the people. Bob Muglia is a data technology investor and business executive, former CEO of Snowflake and past president of Microsoft's server and tools division. He has a rich background as a longtime leader in the tech space, and that's afforded him the unique position of being on the front lines of the internet and the related tech revolution. As you heard in the highlight clip, his experience landed him at the conclusion that while technology and strategy are important, it is critical to maintain keen awareness of the fact that your people are the critical coupling between digital transformation and your company's strategic initiatives. Bob also focuses on how innovation and ethical values can emerge to shape the data economy's future in the era of AI, and he serves as a board member for emerging companies which seek to maximize the power of data to help solve some of the world's most challenging problems. We'll dig into these topics along with things like how a leader's role is to lay an effective strategic plan, but in a way that empowers people to own the idea like it's their own. Fascinating insights that he got firsthand from his years working directly with Satya Nadella and how Microsoft, from its inception, leveraged partnerships for growth and competitive advantage. Powerful tips on how you can grow non-core ventures and businesses, even from within a slow-growing company. Ladies and gentlemen, Bob Muglia. Bob, thank you so much for being here with us. It's great to finally have you on the podcast. I'd like to open up with the same question I ask all of our guests, which is, if you can complete this sentence for me. If you really know me, you know that. Well, that I love old rock and roll and that I've been known to follow The Who and Pink Floyd and Roger Waters in their days. You know, I think the other thing that I've always tried to focus on all throughout my career is doing what I think is right and being honest and focusing on high integrity through that and have let that lead my path through life probably more than anything else. God, where do you think that comes from? I really think it comes from the fact that over time I've learned that when you aren't fully honest and with high integrity in what you say, you can get yourself into trouble. And it seems like just telling the truth is the way to make things work the best. The other thing I always said when I was running a company or running a division is is that I only have one strategy. I only have one story. I say it to customers. I say it to employees. I say it to investors. It's the same strategy. Now, you have a different bent on it, a different take, because obviously the audience is different and their concerns are different. But sometimes people try and manage things, you know, manage one set one way and another way. And I just was never smart enough to do that. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah, when there's one pure strategy and everyone can hear the same message. Right or wrong, it's better to be consistent and it's better when it is wrong, because ultimately many strategies do need to be modified, that you're honest about that and you come out and you say, you know, we're going to change strategy and here's why we're going to change it. Certainly we did at Microsoft all the time. Microsoft sort of was notorious for that. (laughs) Yeah, great. I'm excited to also dig in a bit into Microsoft and Snowflake. Since you brought up strategy, that leads naturally to our second question, which is what's your definition of strategy? To me, a strategy is a thoughtful, team-oriented approach to solving a hard problem. And, you know, that's what I've always tried to do when faced with challenges. 
predominantly in business, is to work together with the team to come up with the answer. Because I've always found that by working together, we come up with better answers and to do so in a continuous sort of approach where people are involved. My favorite tool in the toolbox is a weekly meeting. So I've always wound up using it. I mean, weekly is a pretty good cadence. There's nothing magic about weekly. Sometimes it can be every two weeks or every month, but weekly keeps things going at a nice cadence for most things. I've heard you talk a bit about the frequency of meetings. I wonder if you could talk to us about that. Like, when is it weekly? When is it monthly? When is it daily? As a leader, as a CEO, and you've been the CEO of everything from a 10,000-person organization to what wasn't quite a startup, but a well-on-the-way startup, Snowflake, and now... One small note, I was not the CEO of Microsoft, but I ran a big group at Microsoft. A big group, yeah. But I, I mean, yeah, not the CEO, right? I understand. How do you think about meeting frequency? You know, I think obviously meetings, they're a distraction from people in some ways. On the other hand, they're an important tool if used properly. To me, again, the most useful meeting is one that has got a very clearly defined purpose attached to it, where there are clear objectives that the entire team has. And typically those objectives evolve over a period of time as you're working together to solve one of these really hard problems. You know, and for example, the kind of examples I used to talk about this is when I was at Microsoft and virtualization happened, I was running the server group. We were selling server operating systems that ran on computers and now they'd be running in virtual machines. And, you know, how do we work with VMware? How do we compete? You know, we worked together as a leadership team for months, really, to come up with a strategy. And while we were fairly competitive at first, I think in the end, the competition became more cooperation. And in the end, when I look back, both companies won. And so I consider that to be successful in the end when both companies can come out a winner. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting. We have been doing some research that shows that today, companies that work within ecosystems that deliver their end value through ecosystem partners, they outperform on multiple dimensions. But it seems like, you know, if we're just sticking with Microsoft for a moment, you know, you got to work with Bill Gates, with Steve Ballmer, with Satya Nadella. I was wondering if you might be willing to maybe characterize what their strategic approaches are, and maybe that correlates with like what the market needs in terms of the approach of strategy. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit with like Bill and Steve, you know, I have to recognize that I started working with them in the late 80s, and a lot changed, you know, during the 1990s and in the 2000s, going through the DOJ trial, which I was very much a part of. I was one of the witnesses that testified in that. And I think that taught us all a lot about things. Certainly Bill and Steve were and still to a certain extent are fairly aggressive in their approach to things. And Satch, I think, has a more industry-wide focus to what he does. I sort of joke about it, but it's sort of true. I think of Satya as the Yoda of the software industry, right? now, the technology industry. I saw that quote. Tell us what you mean by that. He's a super mature leader that teaches and is really guiding things from behind the scenes and stuff. He's clearly very, very important. And yet if you talk to people, you'll find that they feel like they're doing all the work themselves and that such is providing direction. So he's really got an amazing job. Yeah, there is this Taoist phrase from the Tao Te Ching, I think it is. I'm going to paraphrase it, but, you know, a great leader creates change, but the people say we did it ourselves. That's what I'm kind of hearing what you're saying. It's the right way is when people think it's their idea. And of course, parts of it are no matter what, you know, even if as a leader, you are directing them in that direction. I mean, people make it happen. And the devil is always in the details, in my experience. You know, strategies at 100,000 feet are very important, but they're executed on the ground. And they often won or lost in that execution. That's why that's so important. The people. 
So what's the linkage? I can think of it, but what's the linkage of that insight with the idea that people should feel like they've created the strategy themselves? You know, when I think of leadership as a whole, I tend to think of it as having three major components, strategy, structure, and people. And, you know, you need the right strategy. If you don't have the right strategy, you're not going to have a successful outcome. And as I say, execution turns out to be pretty much everything, because no matter how good your strategy is, if you're not executing effectively, you will not succeed. And so that requires a structure, particularly as you start to scale up. And ultimately, it's always about people. Now, if you put those three things in place as a leader, you can really step back to some extent and allow the right thing to happen and only interject in places where people are going off track. And so it really is their idea in a sense. I mean, you're providing them on a high level direction, but if you have the right people and you've established a structure that enables them to work effectively, then they can get their job done. I always said my job is to get 100% out of people as often as I can. You can't always get 100%. And sometimes you can even get 120%. Probably not a good idea to get 120% all the time because you tend to get burnout, but you want to make sure people are focusing and doing everything they possibly can to achieve the objective without going over the line and, you know, causing personal issues and things like that. Yeah, I love that. That's a very helpful and simple checklist of the three things that makes a lot of sense to me. So in my background research for this podcast, what I learned is that you did have some input into Satya being chosen as the next CEO of Microsoft. I'm sure you're going to want to downplay that. And yes, I understand that. I understand that. But you know, there was something that you saw in him, at least for what I've seen, is you felt like he was a right leader for the company. And so I'm wondering, what was it that you saw in him or what does that choice represent as to what a leader should be in the current era? Well, it was interesting because I sort of made the decision to leave Microsoft in 2010 after Steve and I had a falling out, let's call it that way, and ultimately about values, really, and about people. It was about leadership of individuals and individual people, as well as about overall values that caused that. And after I decided to leave, pretty immediately after Steve had a conversation with me about who might replace me, I was running, I was president of Server and Tools at the time and had 10,000 people. It was a $17 billion part of the company at the time. And Steve asked who in the company might replace me. And I said, really, Steve, there's only one person, and that's Sacha. And I'd known Sacha since he joined Microsoft. I'd worked with him many times. He was over in the Bing team at the time, and he really had shown the leadership to do that job. And Steve looked around, he went outside and things, and then decided on Sacha to take my place. And then a couple of years later, when the Microsoft board decided to replace Steve, and they were out looking for a CEO they looked at celebrity CEOs, the people, the names, the head of four and all this stuff. And that might have been okay, but honestly, I'm sure they made the right choice. They decided to stay internally in the company and raise Sacha up into that role. And of course, that was like a trillion dollars in market cap ago. Right. So it's worked out pretty darn well since then. Yeah, that's great. And so in addition to, say, his skills and experience, it kind of see like, hey, cloud, decentralized models, subscription versus licenses. I could see like certain aspects of the business model that he's, but was there anything about his style or perspective that you felt was attuned for the time? There was a cartoon that was out in the mid-2000s of Microsoft where they described the different org structures of the different big companies. And the one of Microsoft had the different teams and they all had guns pointed. <laughs> right, right. Yes, oh, I yes. hate to tell you, there's a lot of truth in that. 
I mean, I had one of those guns in my hand. I was definitely one of the people that were holding one of those guns. And it was rough working across team. And the culture that certainly Steve had sort of driven did not lead itself to cross-team collaboration. And Satcher really changed that. I mean, I think he changed it to help the company understand how they can work together to do things that would benefit the customer. And I think it's paid off in terms of the Microsoft products and the way they work. I think that Microsoft would have built services that ran on the Mac and ran on iPhones and things like that, just because the world was changing so much anyway. But Satya certainly facilitated that. There was resistance from Steve to these things, and that resistance slowed things down. Satya eliminated that resistance. He allowed the juices to flow both creatively and from the perspective of working together. And I think that made the biggest part. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was this kind of pent up interest in, but from the top, there wasn't the open door and Satya represented that open door. Yeah. I've got to do a little bit of work within Microsoft pre-Satya. And I see many of the things that are kind of attributed to the new Microsoft having had the seeds already many years before. Satya announced Office for the iPad like three weeks after he- Right, right, right. Well, it wasn't his idea. It was not like three weeks. It was like worked on. But there were all kinds of restrictions. I mean, like we couldn't release that until the Windows version was at least as good and blah, 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 blah. And so I just like, no, let's do what's right for the customer. Got it. Yes, yes. As I said as well, that was also like a big part of the theme of the Microsoft strategy being more customer centric, being a B2C company versus a B2B, B2B to B2C kind of. Microsoft, I will say one thing, you know, you got to go back to Bill and Steve on this, but Microsoft has always been, in my opinion, the most partner centric company on the planet. And that certainly remains true today. I mean, I think they set the standard for how to do partnerships. Not like we always got it right. Believe me, many mistakes were made along the way, but they do a very good job. And, you know, I've learned through that one of the important things and one of the things I feel good about, by the way, is that Snowflake is maybe one of the next most partner-centric companies on the planet. And I feel like I helped inject some of that DNA. And the current head of product, Christian Kleinerman, who was ex-Microsoft, he's also helped, I think, to bring that culture of partnerships. And, you know, one of the things I learned about partnerships, and this is a really important thing, is all partnerships, they only last as long as it's beneficial to both parties. It really requires three things. It requires an executive relationship where, you know, you have executives that know each other. It requires product where one plus one equals three, you know, the better for the customers. And then it also requires a go-to-market and a sales thing. And if you have those three elements, tactical elements, you have the basis for a successful partnership. And I always use this example that Microsoft has had a very successful 35-year tactical partnership with Dell where they move billions of dollars of software. But if you've ever worked with Michael Dell and Dell, that is always tactical and never more than a quarter ahead in terms of what the objectives are. But it worked very effectively because it met the objectives of both parties. Right, right, right. If it makes sense for us this quarter, then we'll do it. And then it really allows you to work on partnerships in a way that are constantly focused on the win-win. Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. One of our podcast guests, Ben Gomez Caceres, he's a professor. He has this really nice rule, which is one plus one equals three, which is what you described. One plus one equals one, which is probably your go-to-market. You have to act as one. And then one plus one equals 1.4 plus 1.6 or 1.3 plus 1.7, which is that you have to divide the pie fairly. Math may be a little bit hard for some people to deal with in that, but yeah, general, I agree. Those are just saying it a different way. Same thing that I described. You know, it's the same thing. Dividing the pie um, fairly is really saying there's a win-win in the situation. It's long-term. It's a long-term win-win. Which I think a profound strategic implication of that is that in the 80s, 
It was about like, take as much of the pie as you can, right? So that's where Microsoft was in the 90s. That's that's where they, yeah, that's where Microsoft was. That was our 1990s. Right, right, right. Got us into a little bit of trouble, though. I have to say, got us into a little bit of trouble. It did, yeah. Right, right. Which you helped. Think us out. Yeah. There's so much to talk about there, but I want to go on. So you go on, and I'm sorry, I forget if you go to Juniper and then Snowflake or then Snowflake and then Juniper. You went to Juniper. Two years at Juniper. Gotcha. I read a quote of yours while you were at Juniper, and you said something, it's hard to grow a new business inside a company when the business is not growing. I was wondering if you could talk to that, because many of our audience are entrepreneurs looking to grow businesses inside established businesses. Amazing insight. I mean, it was one of those insights that I learned the hard way, which is often the way you learn these insights. When I joined Juniper, first of all, when I was leaving Microsoft, there weren't that many places I could go because I had a non-compete, which was enforceable in Washington State. And Juniper was a place I could go. Kevin Johnson was running the company. He's ex-Microsoft. I'd worked for Kevin before. So it was an easy place in some senses to go. Plus, it transitioned me down to the Bear, which ultimately led me to Snowflake. So there was goodness in that. When I arrived at Juniper, Juniper was growing right before I just like literally until I signed the thing was growing at like 20% a year. And then it stopped growing for the entire time I was there. Wow. It was like this was 2011, 2012 in that time frame. And so when that happens, I was trying to build a software division in a hardware company. And when you're in a situation where the company's not growing, the products that are generating all the revenue still need to be fed with resources. They have new things they need to do. They have competition and everything else. So the priority tends towards the businesses that are frankly generating billions of dollars in revenue. There's good reason for that. And so you're trying to build a business from the ground up. You know, you may generate 50 million, 100 million, but it's very small compared to the larger businesses. And so it's very difficult to justify the funding, even though potentially those businesses you're building may in the long run have value that's greater than the existing business. But the short priorities seem to always trump those long-term things. So the insight really is, is that if your company is in one business and it's successful in that business and it seeks to expand into another, it really must achieve that to a large extent while the primary business is still growing. And once it is flattened out, it is much harder. Amongst the reasons for that, and you discover this particularly in technology, is that you're now trying to build something new in an existing company where to some extent the value of the equity you have when you're trying to recruit people is less than the equity that potentially someone can get from a small startup that's out there. They have a long-term potential that's better. So it's difficult, unless you're Google or, you know, a big company, they have a lot of money. I mean, those companies obviously have plenty of money. Mm -hmm. Slack resources. They can afford to pay people lots of money. But once you're sort of in that situation where money is tight, it becomes very difficult to compete to build new things, which is why I sort of transitioned out of larger companies and started working in small companies as I was trying to build new things. This works. I mean, I was successful in building things at Microsoft many times, but largely that was because you had a well-financed company that could afford to invest. Fascinating. I hadn't thought about that because, you know, the general kind of consensus of like disruption is your core business is growing so well that you get distracted. You don't want to invest in the small, like, you know, Jeff Bezos said, all big things start small. But what you're saying is when the core is in decline, then you're kind of in defensive mode. You're trying to shore up the wall. It's very difficult to overcome that. Yeah. Interesting. So I have so many questions to ask around leadership and strategy. However, we're reaching the top of our time with you and I need to understand, you talk about artificial general intelligence and most people say, oh, never or if so in a long time. 
But your view is that it is closer than we might think. And I'd like to confirm that that's what your view is and then tell us about that. Let me just start by telling you I'm not unique in this. If you're in San Francisco or you're talking to technology, they're involved in this. I'm a novice. I'm a novice. I'm just talking about like what we read about. They're even more aggressive in the time frame than I am. I mean, I think it's within the next decade. And I never thought that. Let me be clear. I mean, I've spent my whole life expecting that this would happen someday, but I thought it was like 2100 and I would never see it. Now I think I'll see it. And it's incredible because what we now have for the first time is inside a computer, there's a way to take the intelligence that a person has gained by doing a job and effectively bottle it in this artificial intelligence neural network. And so we can take a lot of the thought process and things that people have gone through and now begin to build that into these systems. In the short to medium run, that's how it's going to have a huge impact as taking on tasks that perhaps, you know, are the more menial tasks that people do. Those sorts of things can all be automated in a much more straightforward way. You know, in the medium term, like 2030, 2035, yeah, I do think we're going to see very highly intelligent machines that are capable of doing things that perhaps go beyond what people can even do. And there's a lot of, I think, really great things are going to come. I mean, I'm excited by the fact that I feel like the 2030s will be the era where we really will begin to live with robots around us. They'll help us in our tasks. We're starting to see that, just to. I mean, I saw that San Francisco is now letting driverless cars, the first services run 24 hours a day. That's the inkling of the beginning of this, but it's going to become much more pervasive throughout our lives. And I think in a way that will help people in a lot of ways to take off a lot of the work that people don't like doing. And where that goes will depend on how humans and machines interact. It'll trend on regulation. We could talk about this now for the next hour. We only have a couple more minutes. Just talk to us about values and how values will shape that. And, you know, you relate a lot of it to Isaac Asimov, who created the concept of a robot and his robotic rules. Just talk to us a little bit about values and where this could go and where we would want it to go. Sure. Now, Asimov wrote these laws originally in the 1940s before the advent of digital computing, if you can imagine. You know, the three laws that he wrote were the first law, a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. The second law, a robot must obey the orders given to it by human beings except when such orders would conflict with the first law. And then the third law, a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. Wow. So prescient. And then as I understand it, eventually he came up with a zeroth law. Yeah, he did. You know, later on in his career in the 1970s, when he realized that robots would become very sophisticated and have an impact on human society, he came up with the zeroth law. A robot may not harm humanity or through inaction allow humanity to come to harm. And I think that's very much speaks to some of the concerns that people have. And it's important to take these things into account as we build more artificial intelligence systems. So in the framing of Asimov, I kind of envision that there are these humans that are designing these robots and programming them. But in the current reality, there is no such authority that's defining the laws that these are. Not true. No? Tell me. Not true at all. The characteristics of these large language models are created by the input that their creators are giving it. It's based on all of the English or all the written text that's presented to it. So it very much depends on what you feed it, what it's going to learn. If you feed it bad stuff, it's going to learn and start doing bad things. If you feed it things that are high integrity and that are fundamentals of humankind and basic things we've learned, it's going to learn that. They don't understand exactly how it learns all these things. That's certainly true. 
But we absolutely know that what goes into it is going to have an impact on what comes out of it. Hmm. Not unlike raising children that what you expose them to, they absorb, and that shapes their values and determines who they become. These are much faster. <laughs> much faster, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, zero to 25 in one day. Excellent. And you now work with Series A, pre-Series A, Series B companies, advising them. And you're kind of playing at that cutting edge now. What are some ways that people can continue connecting with you and learning from you? Well, a new book out. Yep, so let's start of course. with that. Of course. Read the Datapreneurs. We talk about the history of computing and give some idea of where it's going. And, you know, I'm just enjoying working with people that are building new things that can affect society. And certainly with this new technology that's out there, there's more opportunity than ever before. Awesome. Well, Bob, thank you for writing that book and for sharing it with us. There are very few people that are both at that cutting edge and have experienced it from one of the biggest companies in the world to medium and very early stage companies. So thank you very much for arming us with some of your insights and guidance. It's great to have you here. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our executive producer, Karina Reyes, our editor, Zach Ness, our audio engineer, Jack Tipper, and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you soon with another episode of OutThinkers.